0: you are now listening to the hunter's advantage podcast we preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts The Hunter's Advantage Podcast is powered by Out on a Limb Manufacturing. Out on a Limb is a family-owned company based right here in Oklahoma that makes tree stands, saddle platforms, climbing sticks, and so much more.
1: Christian, I have a quick question. What's that? What bites sound harder, a hippo or an alligator? No idea. It's a trick question. The Ridge Runner 2.0 bites harder than both of them. But all jokes aside, we use these products all across the land on public or private. These help us get into any tree we want and hunt where the deer actually are.
0: Most men go to the grocery store for their meat, but these products help you go to God's grocery store. I have used the Out on a Limb Ridge Runner 2.0 and the Shakar Sticks for the last few years hunting public land bucks, and I've actually shot several bucks out of this setup. If you want to support the podcast and get some Out on a Limb equipment, make sure to go to outonalimbmfg.com and use code HNTA10 for 10% off at checkout. Once again, if you want to support the podcast, go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 at checkout for 10% off. Now let's get back to the podcast. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. Um, I'm just going to say what episode this is, but we don't do that anymore, but... Anyways, we have a absolute whitetail hunting legend on the podcast, at least in my mind, uh, Don Higgins of Chasing Giants and Real World Wildlife Products. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I'm excited for this
2: conversation. Well, thanks for having me. Always uh, happy to help others out. And, you know, a lot of people help me uh, get to where I'm at today and I like to help uh, give others a hand up and, and see them succeed as well. Yeah, for sure. So
0: how... Uh, For people that maybe haven't been in tune with every episode of Chasing Giants this summer, how has your your summer kind of been? And I know that you recently got your trail cams out. you got any sightings of Babe yet?
2: Yeah, I I got the first pictures of Babe uh, last Friday. And uh, we posted those on the Whitetail Master Academy on Monday, Mm -hmm. um, as well as some photos from last year at the same time he had a real unique pattern that uh, he would disappear in the, you know, earlier, late spring. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure when he left the farm, but, uh, right after shedding his antlers, he would leave. And then, you know, a lot of bucks they get in their bachelor groups and they stay there until the bachelor group breaks up, you know, around the 1st of September, but he would always show back up in mid July. And last year he showed up on the 15th for the first time, got my first picture on the 15th of July. And, this year got the first picture on the 14th of July. So uh, kind of showed the pictures that we got last year on the 15th and ones we got this year on the 14th. And um, I don't know, I'm, I'm ready to get after it this fall. So lots yeah. of good young bucks coming on too. So uh, I'm real excited for the future.
0: I saw one of those, uh, one of the eight points you posted. I think you said who, anybody like big eight points. That was a monster eight point that you posted.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of 8-pointers, but that's one that I might just have to shoot (laughs) because I got one on the wall. My biggest 8 is uh, 155 inches, which is a good 8. I think that one's probably 170 inches, pretty easy. He's just got giant brows, and he's got a real widespread long main beam, so uh, I I think that's a 170-inch 8, so I might have to shoot that one yeah that's a that's a world-class animal
0: so i know you in your prediction preseason, you were talking about babe you know maybe not making it to that 200 inch mark i know we still got you know every buck is a little bit different we still got some time but do you do you think that he's going to be there is he look pretty good this year
2: well the bad thing is the two pictures i got of him so far he's facing right at the camera and you can't see really what he's got on either side that I can see some things that he did not have last year, some sticker points on one of the bases. He had a a sticker between his brow and his G2 on one side. And then last year, both of his G2s were short, and both of them had a sticker. This year, you could see that one of those G2s is split way down low. It's almost like two tines coming out at the at the base or, or right at that main beam. So I think those two tines will total more inches than what the G2 was last year, Mm -hmm. but, uh, just a bad angle for me to see a whole lot. Um, I mean, if I had to guess from what I seen, I don't think he'll make 200, but he, you know, who who knows? He may turn his head next week in a camera and I'm shocked at what (laughs) what was there that I couldn't see.
1: Yeah. How do you, how do you typically go about judging the, the size of like the velveted deer because Christian and I got to talking about this a few weeks back. Whenever we uh, scout some public land and stuff, that's where we get most of our good pictures that we have this hypothesis basically that when you get a picture of a buck in velvet, you just kind of want to deduct about eight to 10 inches of rack size to that just because, you know, they got a little bit more girth. They got what looks like longer tines. And then when you, let's say you find a shed that, that spring, you can kind of identify it. Is that kind of what you're seeing? How like just velvet makes deer look bigger in the summer?
2: No, there's no doubt about that. I think for me, it's just been 50 years of experience uh, watching bucks in velvet and then seeing them in the fall. And I've, I've been through the, the whole gamut, if you will, of overestimating them when you see them in velvet and then being a little disappointed in the fall because they've shrunk. (laughs) So, You know, I temper my expectations now, and I know that that buck is not going to look as big in the fall. And so, I'm when I give an estimate on a velvet buck, I'm guessing on what he's going to shrink down to in the fall, and just just understand it's going to happen. Yeah,
0: well, I did. uh, I'm sure you get you know get several compliments throughout throughout the week, or maybe some haters on social media. But I I wanted to pay you a good compliment by saying Mm -hmm. that my deer hunting philosophy since I started listening to you guys has kind of radically changed. And with my sick, I think my success rate is short, like quickly followed after that as well by listening to you guys. And I think what I've always appreciated about the stuff that you guys have put out on the podcast is like, it seems it's tried and true, no BS, the kind of the kiss acronym, the keep it simple, stupid kind of stuff. And Mm. one of the ones that really, Clicked in my mind the first time I think I listened to one of your episodes was the idea of like limited intrusion. Can you talk about how you learned that lesson kind of the hard way?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, years ago, I mean, I, I've just always been crazy about deer. I, I shot my first buck at 16 years old back in 1979. And when I walked up on that buck, my whole world changed. I knew what I was put on this earth to do. (laughs) And by the time I was in my early twenties, I gave up everything else. Just totally give it up. Um, so, you know, I, I've never been turkey hunting a day in my life. I haven't been fishing in almost 30 years. It's all big deer. So, um, it gives me a kind of a unique perspective that uh he, I get more experience in one season than most deer hunters are probably gonna get in five. Um even when I was younger and I had a full time job, I would save all my vacation and all my sick days for November. And most days and I had a, I had a real job, you know, I was living paycheck to paycheck and everything else, just like a lot of guys. But I was um saving all that time off for the rut. And uh, so I got a lot of experience each season that most guys didn't get. And I've kind of went clear down a rabbit trail and off of your questions, you're going to have to repeat <laughs> it. But uh, I I was leading into something. Now I forgot what it was. We were talking about how
0: you learned that lesson of limited intrusion. Yeah. Like okay. when, that
2: so when I was – um younger and, and i was gung-ho i mean i was absolutely gung-ho I, I would arrange my work schedule even in october where i could hunt every single evening in october and, and you know I, I would get permission on a new property and, and what would happen was uh it, it would be great at first you know it was the deer hadn't been disturbed i would get in there and hang a stand or two I'd have some great hunts right out of the gate. And then the longer I would hunt that property, the deer sightings just fell off and I'd come back the next year. And the next year it'd be good at the start. And then quickly it was no good. And I I burned out. I'd hate to guess how many properties I burned out dozens and dozens and dozens of properties I burned out. And one day it just clicked on me. The issue here is you, it's me, you know, it's, it's not the somebody else putting pressure on these deers. It's the deer catching on to me because I'm I'm going right into the heart of the property. I, I'm trying to find the best tree on the whole farm to hang my stand, and in the process, I, I'm putting so much human intrusion that those deer are catching on a lot quicker than I caught on to what they were doing, and they were vacating the property. And uh, you, you know, it uh, when it finally dawned on me that I was the problem. I, I took a step back and, and refocused and just totally changed my approach. Um, one of the things I did was I, I started getting all my stands ready in, in the winter. Right after season closed, I would hang my stands for the next year. i do all my postseason scouting. I'd get my stands ready, clear my shooting lanes, and I totally stayed out until the day I came in to hunt. There was none of this pre-season going in in September, hanging stands. In September, I let everybody else do that on their properties. I stayed totally out of the ones I was hunting. And uh, just like a lot of the lessons i learned over the last 50 years, I learned it the hard way. I, I screwed up a bunch of times, and, and then finally I figured it out, and I just changed my approach. And uh, that's been the the biggest teacher for me is is mistakes. Try not to repeat the mistakes, and sometimes you might repeat them a dozen times before you figure it out but once you do don't go back and do that again (laughs) yeah
1: no i kind of know what you mean on that limited intrusion because just accidentally uh it was it was no me figuring out this on my own but i hunted a place from like 2017 to 2019 and probably only seen one pope and young class deer uh and that was just through trail cameras and uh I kind of got tired of that place. And it was also when we were all trying to hunt more public land. And so all of 2020 season, that's kind of what we focused on and the start of the 2021 season, that's kind of what we were pushing to as well. And so I didn't get into back into this property until, I don't know, November of 2021 and I seen, and it was before the rut. So it was kind of like maybe late October. So it was like that pre-rut where they're still kind of on somewhat of a pattern, but uh, I seen, I think three or four, bucks that would that would probably not hit pope but i would say the 115 to 120 and around here that's that's it was a pretty big jump from you know the 2017 to the 2019 and then no one really hunting it that 2020 season until or the 2021 season until late november or october you can just kind of see how much you actually mess up whenever you just kind of take a step back
2: Uh, There's no doubt about it. Hunting pressure ruins more properties than anything. And the the crazy thing is, is you get on the internet and you watch these videos and read these blogs, whatever, and you got all this, these guys telling you to get out there and do this, do that, you know, put in a little water hole, do whatever. And I'm not saying those things don't work. They do to some degree, but You know, the, the thing of it is most things we do in life, the more effort we put towards it, the more successful we are. And with deer hunting, that is true only to a certain point. So you start putting effort in and your success climbs. But once you reach the breaking point, boom, if your success fall on a property falls off lower than it was where you started and, uh, the, the key is to, to keep getting that property better without hitting that crashing point where, where it becomes even less um, appealing to deer than it was when you started. And I, I have absolutely no doubt that too many guys are, are listening to bad information on the Internet and they're burning out their property before deer season even opens. It's it's so hard to stay out for
0: It's it's, it's so hard for me up until a couple years ago to stay out. Um, And I feel like most people throughout the country are working with limited acreage, you know, maybe they got a 20 or a 40 or 80 and uh, lucky people maybe have a few hundred. And it's just so tough to stay out of that. It's almost like you have to make a decision of what your goal is beforehand and say like, do I want quality of hunts? Do I, would I rather have three or four hunts with the right wind direction with the right access that are going to be killer hunts where I could kill this buck, right? I want, do I want to hunt quite a bit? And I feel like most people want to hunt, you know, when they got time mm-hmm. and they want to get out and that doesn't always line up to the best type of
2: hunts. Oh, I totally get it. I was there. Um, like I, I told you my story, you know, I, I, I wanted to be in the woods every single day of season and it just, it, it's to me, it, it got to the point where do I want to go hunting every single day or do I want to see deer every single time I hunt? Because you can go hunting every day and hardly ever see deer except, I mean, you're surprised, Hey, I seen deer on this hunt first hunt in a <laughs> week, you know? Yeah. Well, I, that wasn't, it got to the point where that wasn't a whole lot of fun anymore. I wanted Mm -hmm. to see deer every time I went to the woods and and that required a change of tactics and cutting down human intrusion was step one. Yeah. And
0: do you, did you do that by trying to acquire more permission, more properties you can go and kind of spreading your, you know, spreading your portion among many different places?
2: That's exactly what I did. Um, you know, I just, uh. Well, back when this happened to me, it was a totally different world than it is today. I mean, you could knock on ten doors and get permission for probably eight of those properties. Today, you could knock on a hundred doors and maybe get permission for five. Um, it, it's just a whole lot harder today to get permission. Back then, you know, I, I could have permission on, on more properties and I, I could really effectively hunt um, the big advantage today is the trail camera I, I know every buck that's running every property I got to hunt so I know where to invest my time sitting in a, in a stand uh, I'm not sitting in a stand in a, on a property where there's not a shooter buck now I'm a little more picky than a lot of guys and uh, I'm not saying it's wrong to, to shoot bucks smaller than what I shoot but you know when you're gonna chase the, the real giants you got to be efficient with your time. You got to spend your hunting time on properties where they exist. And that requires a lot of scouting, a lot of trail cameras. And, uh, so, so there was advantages back then. I, I had a whole lot more properties to hunt, but today I, I know every buck on every property I hunt. It, it is so rare for me to see a buck that I don't already have his picture. It just doesn't happen.
0: What gives you the confidence to to be able to to say obviously it's it's knowledge and experience, but what is it about where you set trail cameras or how you kind of go about that strategy where you do have confidence that I know of ninety eight percent of the bucks that are on this place because I feel like a lot of folks go in and myself included, I'll hunt and I'll be like oh that's a new one that's a new one how do you how do you do that?
2: Well, I, I'm. Uh, one big thing is that I, I don't care if I get a buck's picture at night. I think a lot of guys are hung up on getting a daylight picture of a buck, and then when they do, oh, it's time to go hunting. I, I don't care about that. And they're also using the trail cameras to try to tell them where to put their stands and things like that. I can figure out where to put a stand on a property. I can a lot of other hunters. But th- I'll, I'll set my cameras more out on the edges, um, field edges, woods edge where a lot of my bigger buck pictures are going to happen at night all i want to know is that the buck is on the property and using the property if if i know that i'll I'll figure out where to kill him on the property and i I just think that the way i use trail cameras is totally different than the way most hunters do we jake and i have been doing that quite a bit on public
0: land here recently where we set a lot of our cameras out on like access routes or roads. And the reason being is because we're going to get pictures of those deer. It's not specific knowledge. It's not like he's using this, this ridge system or this bedding area or hitting this white Oak flat, but it gives me confirmation that he exists. And then you kind of have to use the woodsmanship from that point on, like the, the trail camera can't tell you everything. And it's not like this big net that kind of catches it all. And we've had to take a step back the last couple of years and kind of reframe that in our mind. I think.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of guys want to put their trail camera where they want to hang their, their stand. Well, that trail camera is pressure on that exact spot. So, I mean, I've had more than one buck that I get his picture on a camera one time, and he, I, I don't ever get his picture there again, even in following years when he's still alive. And I'm not saying he vacates the area, but he they, they look at those, camera, not all bucks, but a lot of those mature bucks, they see that camera and they know they, they tie it to humans somehow. And they may just skirt that area by 20 or 30 yards. They just miss getting their picture taken. But the pressure that a camera can put on a specific site, you know, a stand site is huge and you can burn out a stand site with a camera before hunting season even opens.
1: Yeah. I kind of want to go back to that topic we were talking about a second ago where basically you can't shoot big deer, big deer aren't in your area. And I know that, I mean, I guess everybody knows that you're pretty good at finding those, those mega giants. So I also know that all your uh, spots aren't on private. I'm pretty sure if I can remember that correctly. And you hunt some on public. Is that, Mm. is that kind of true?
2: Uh, you know, I had a goal uh, of shooting a giant on public and had a, just an absolutely terrible experience with probably one of the most unethical hunters I've ever met in my life a year ago. And it just kind of burned me out on the whole public thing. And I took a step back and I thought, why do I want to shoot a buck on public? And the whole reason was I wanted to prove that I could And, and, not prove to myself, prove to the world. Mm-hmm. And I took a step back and I thought, why do I want to put myself through all this turmoil <laughs> to make prove to somebody else? And the haters are going to be there anyway. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. The haters are still going to be there. But, you know, some of these, the better public areas that I was on anyway, you, you had to sign in and, uh, you know, at the parking area, there'd be a, a clipboard. Um, where you had to sign in and sign out when you left. Well, just just imagine what happens when somebody goes and sees my name on the clipboard. Mm, I I was getting, I was getting emails, social media messages. Hey, I seen your name on a clipboard at such and such. Um, (laughs) there's, there's gotta be a big buck in there. Can you share some pictures with me and I'll show you, share the ones I got. Well, (laughs) no, (laughs) so (laughs) Um, it just became more of a headache, and, and I'm not saying I would never hunt public again, but it became a whole lot less important to me. Um, after an encounter with one particular individual, well,
1: well you could you could we might have ran into the that. same guy though, too. Yeah, that's true. You <laughs> could change that, you could just be a uh, Han
0: Diggins, you know, just, change it, just <laughs> change it around just one letter. I mean, they might catch well. on, but.
2: The issue is that uh, me and the other guy butted heads to the point where the conservation officer had to get involved and he made sure I knew that I was supposed to sign in every time, which I did. And I had been anyway, but, uh, just to, and it, he was doing it as a courtesy to me, just making sure I understood all the rules so I didn't get in trouble. But I mean, when you have a little bit of notoriety, there's people that want to bring you down and you got to, I mean, I've literally carried a video camera on every single hunt I've been on since 2004. And the, the reason for, Well, I, I like to film my hunts. I like to film the deer. I pass in that. But the biggest reason I started carrying a trail cam or a video camera was to prove my innocence. When somebody wants to accuse me of something, You know, if I shoot a deer and I'm tracking it, I'm, I got that video camera running. Now here he is, you know, I, I make sure I I scan the area so I can bring anyone back and I can show them the trees, you know, Mm -hmm. that's in that frame. And it's a matter of, you know, covering your butt when you're out there and and people are trying to bring you down. Has that ever took like a little bit of the joy out for you? Um, I, I I don't know. It, it's it it makes it really really satisfying when you know somebody's out to get you and you you can slip into their area and pull out a giant. <laughs> I've done that before. Yeah. i I've, the Joey Buck I shot a couple years back. I right in twenty twenty same year I shot Mal. Um, I went into enemy territory and and drug that that guy out and that was. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of people in that neighborhood that would have just loved to. Have, had me busted for anything even if it was a false accusation they wouldn't have cared if they could have brought me down somehow so i i actually get a, a good bit of satisfaction out of going into an area and i do it's 100 percent legal i mean i don't even think about bending or breaking the rules and I, I video it all so that i can prove my innocence but uh i guess on one hand it it makes things a lot harder because I mean, I can't just park my truck anywhere I go. And the Joey Bucks are a good example of that. I was parking my truck a mile and a half away and riding a quiet cat bike to the property, you know, across fields in the dark, whatever, making people see my truck someplace else and think I was hunting there. Oh, and actually, uh, I was going somewhere <laughs> else. juking them out, you, you, you know. Huh.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, one of the other, um, portions, I think of just your kind of general philosophies that really made a lot of sense to me as someone who went from kind of hunting the South to more of the Midwest ag country was the, the broader checkerboard idea. Like thinking of the property that you're hunting as a one square on a broader checkerboard. I never really understood why that mattered at all until we went to Kansas and, our buddy, our buddy was hunting a place where there was a bean field a half a mile to his west and he's setting up as they're phasing through and coming to a property that's two properties over and he's already thinking about how the deer are going to use that. I never really considered that until I started listening to you guys and then hunting in the Midwest.
2: You, you want to do everything you can to make your property as different as all the properties around it as you possibly can. And, and not just with habitat, not just with food, but also with how you hunt it. Uh, You want to put the least human intrusion on your property. Let the people around you pound their properties. Those deer will find that that property that's got the least human intrusion. I guarantee, especially in the mature bucks. And uh, I mean, it's so critical to success. Um, We don't see things the way a mature buck does. He sees the the habitat the landscape around him totally different than we do and the, the thing that catches our attention is prime deer habitat you know we we see an area that's really thick and uh, got a lot of brows, and it's, it's probably got an ag field close by for him to feed in whatever and we think man this looks like great deer habitat but a, a buck a mature buck looks at it totally different the thing that he's focused on when he sees a, a landscape or the countryside is He's seeing those pockets where there's a whole bunch of human activity, and he's seeing those little pockets where there's almost no human activity. And he would rather spend his daylight hours under one lone oak tree out in the middle of nowhere than he would in the nicest 100-acre thicket in the world if that one oak tree has zero human intrusion and that 100-acre thicket has just one hunter that doesn't know what he's doing stomping around in it. That's such a good point. We have a, or I have a lease with a buddy and
0: it's a mile off the road to get back to the lease. And it's basically just a big oxbow in a river. It's got ag surrounded on all sides. Um, and then, but the property basically is just like 10 foot tall Johnson grass, just native grasses. And I remember my buddy, when we got the lease, he's like, you need to get in here and put food plots in and, you know, get all this stuff going and get your trails going and all this stuff. And I was like, well, I don't really have any money after spending the money on the lease to do anything to this place. And I have not touched it. And I promise you that hundred acres of just bedding is the best whitetail hunting property off the road. Nobody can access it. It is the best property I've ever hunted in my life. And it's because I think literally, like you said, the intrusion, we go on there once or twice a year and it's dynamite because of it.
2: Human intrusion trumps everything you could possibly do to a hunting property. It trumps the food you could put there. It it trumps the bedding cover that you could create there. It trumps water holes, whatever. There is nothing more important than lack of human intrusion when it comes to mature deer.
0: That all those bucks being in that one area, the veil was kind of torn from my eyes. When I started listening to you guys, I started understanding intrusion and why all that many mature bucks can be in one little area like that. That has Mm -hmm. no value apart from bedding. That was it.
2: Well, I think there's a lot of information out there that it's not necessarily bad information. I think there's some really big names in the industry that put out really good information, but that information is only applicable to the types of properties they have to have to hunt. You know, when you've got a 500 acre property and, and you can do it. It's just set up for deer and nothing else. Uh, and, and it's in a neighborhood where there's all kinds of other properties managed for big deer. You can do things that you can't do on a 40, 80 acre property that is in, in the midst of heavy hunting pressure. And uh, I think a lot of times people will, will take some of the information from some of these big name people and they they try to apply it in a totally different scenario than what the, the person giving them the advice has to, to hunt. And it's it's not bad information. It's not like these guys are, are giving bad information, but it's information that's just not going to work for the average deer hunter on the property he has to hunt.
0: The smaller the property, the more you can, I mean, obviously I know you're considering intrusion all the time, but, Is it the smaller, the more hyper fixated you are on that one detail?
2: Absolutely. Yep. A mature buck would rather have one acre to himself than he would a hundred acres with one hunter in it. And most of the time they know when there's one hunter in it, um, Hmm. how you hunt it is is huge and you're going to have, again, you're going to have guys saying, "Yeah, you can, do whatever you want on your property and blah, blah, blah. And then about the 1st of September, then you cut down on the human intrusion. And, and uh, you know, from then on, it'll be fine. The bucks will show up. But when you look at what these guys have actually killed and the kind of property they got, um, I'm taking things to the ultimate. You know, I'm not happy with killing the second biggest deer in the county. I'm trying to find and kill the biggest deer in the whole (laughs) state if I can. Mm -hmm. Now, that may be a little bit extreme or a little bit exaggerated, but I I literally have, like right now, I've got trail cameras in three states. I'm looking for giants. And uh, when you do that, there's, first of all, those those deer are so rare. I mean, I do that every year. And two out of three years, I don't even find a buck that that I really want to hunt. It's only, right now, it's about one every three years I find a giant that I want to hunt. It's just a totally different game, and it requires a totally different set of rules to play by. But if you play by those rules, and your goal is just, say, a 170-inch buck, I could kill a 170-inch buck with every tag I buy. But, and it's, a lot of it has to do with, the dedication, you know, I'm doing nothing else. I don't have a fishing boat. I don't have a motorcycle. I don't have any <laughs> other hobby. <laughs> if people knew how many hours I put in, in the off season, they could probably do the same thing. And it's just, uh, that's my passion and I'll do whatever it takes to achieve it. But even at that, it is super, super difficult because those bucks are just so rare. There is a lot of miles between 180 inch deer, lots of miles. And for you to be able to find one year after year, it's, it's pretty difficult. Well, have you tried golf? <laughs> I have not. Nope. I've been a golfer a couple of times in my life with my dad because he's a golfer. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, I bet I haven't golfed with him in 20
1: years. Well, I don't, I don't blame you there. So what, what changed your mindset in wanting to chase like that bigger deer? Can you recall like an exact moment where that flip switch and you knew that you only wanted to hunt those world-class deer?
2: Not really because it was, uh, my whole hunting career has been a series of goals. So when I started, I was looking to shoot any deer mm-hmm. and then, uh, then I wanted to shoot bucks only. So I was looking for any buck. And then I wanted to shoot only bucks that had at least eight points. And then it was bucks that scored at least 125 inches. And then it was 140 inches and it was 150 inches. And each one of them steps took several years. It wasn't like I was shooting one forties last year. Now next, next year it's one fifties. And next year after that it's one sixties, there was a lot of years between each step. I I didn't move on to the next step until I, I could, whatever my goal was, I could accomplish it. Four out of five years. So when I got to where I could shoot an eight pointer at four out of five years, then I started looking for 125 inch bucks. And then when I got to where I could shoot 125s four out of five years, then I went to 140. So there was a lot of years between each of those steps and it was just a progression that never stopped. And uh, I, I guess in 2004, when I shot my first 200, um, that was just, uh, I mean, it, it was an unbelievable feeling because I, I had worked my whole life. I mean, I was been, what was I 41 years old and I'd worked my whole life to that point. And when it happened, it was just like, I just accomplished my life's goal. And, uh, but then I wanted to do it again and it took me 13 years to kill the next one. So, and then it took me just three years to kill the next one after that. <laughs> but, uh, did you, you feel any once tags you do it,
1: did you fill any tags between the, the 13 years? Oh of yeah. The 200s. Okay.
2: Yeah. I killed, i shot several bucks in there. A lot of, you know, 170 class bucks, especially, I mean, a lot of bucks from say one mid one fifties to low one seventies. Yeah. Those
1: are still a lot of incredible those incredible bucks. Obviously I'm not to the point where where you are like I I don't think I could pass a 150 or 160 anytime soon. I have noticed so my biggest deer he scored 162 and just complete luck that I got him. No no credit own. Give that all to God somehow some way. But the following year I had a probably 120 inch buck come into a decoy. He got me excited, got my blood pumping and so I drew back and shot him. And everything was beautiful. He went, I mean, that's the first deer I ever seen go down in sight w- using a bow, at least if I didn't spine him. But, uh, <laughs> um, walking up to him, like I was, I was jacked. I was thankful for the deer and all that stuff. But there was, there was something in the back of my head that was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like with, with that size of, of deer. And it's not that I wasn't, wasn't thankful. I, I just want to reiterate that. Like I was, I was pumped and all that stuff, but they were just that nagging feeling like, I can do a little bit better. And is that mm-hmm. kind of the same, same mindset of, that you got to at one point or.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, today I can sit and watch a 170 inch buck walk by my stand and not even think about picking my bow up and I'll grab the camera, video camera every time, but my heart don't start racing like it, it used to on 170. And, uh, I, I just, I, I get just as much thrill today video in that buck and, and letting him walk by a, a, as I do, as I would shooting him. But, you know, one thing I want to really stress is I uh, listen to your story is I, I was in the same boat and, uh, I never dreamed, um, I don't know how old you are, but w- when I was say 30, I never dreamed that I would let a 150 inch buck walk. And the, the thought of shooting a 200-inch buck was just – that was just a far-off – fairy tale.
1: <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> you, you didn't even dream that. I mean, that wasn't even reality. And I, I say all the time, especially to young people, dream big because God's reality is so much bigger than you can even imagine. If somebody would have told me when I was your age that one day you're going to kill – three 200s and you're even going to let a 200 inch buck walk at 20 yards hoping that he gets bigger next year i would have said you're absolutely out of your mind there is no (laughs) way i'm letting 150 inch deer walk yeah um so you know i can relate to, to a lot of young hunters because i was there and i sure didn't start out you know where i'm at now it's taken 50 years to get here and uh yeah, I just I, I like to share that because I want to encourage you. Don't set the bar too low. You set it where you think you'll never reach it. And I promise you God's bar is way higher.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. So I wanna I wanna put you in the middle of a kind of predicament and I think you're the best person to uh to settle a debate. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so Christian, he already described this property to you. And, uh, it's, it's one of the primo leases that, that we've ever seen in Oklahoma, by the way. Yeah. And so just a kind of a little bit of background where we grew up, if you, if you've seen a four and a half year old deer, yet alone shoot it, you know, you, you did something regardless of, of the rack size. And now he's on a lease and he got it two years ago. Did you, this is the third year. Yeah. So this, yeah, it's going to be the third year where he got it. He's in a mindset, and I don't blame him, that any mature deer, regardless, you know, a mature deer is a trophy, so it's almost a sin to pass a mature deer, meaning like, so his last two deer were seven and a half, and then another buddy that he's on a lease with killed one that was six and a half, and these these were, the aging was done by our taxidermist, so we assume he's he's pretty credible in this, but I think he has a higher ceiling if he were to wait, because he doesn't have much trail camera data in this, in this area. And because the card fills up fast and the latest he's gotten into it was November 3rd or 4th. And so he hadn't even really reached the, True potential to play.
0: Yeah, that's basically the it of it. I, I, my cell camera SD cards have filled up before the the peak part of the season. And I don't know, growing up at a place where you don't get to shoot a lot of mature deer, watching a five and a half or a six and a half year old deer walk feels sacrilegious, kind of in that season that I'm in right now. But, um, I've, like, like you said, with God's reality being, uh, bigger than anything you can dream, I'm, I'm trying to get myself to a place where I can set a goal and stick to it, which I know you guys talk to quite a bit, but it's so hard to do when there's a really good buck that, you know, it'll make you happy standing in front of you.
2: You got to take it one step at a time. And, and I see this with a lot of hunters today is they're trying to shoot booners, um, with less than 10 years hunting experience. You know, that they're trying to move up the ranks too fast and you got to enjoy each step along the way. Um, shoot a bunch of 130s, 140s, and and you're going to get tired of shooting them. <laughs> if you're serious about shooting giants, you're going to get tired of shooting 130s and 140s, and then you move up and you start shooting 150s and 160s, and you just don't rush it. You know, take it. Enjoy each step along the way.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. To me, kind of
1: going G- back into the rarity thing, like they're – They've hunted three days, three or four days, and they've killed two seven and a half year old and one six and a half. And so, used to the rarity used to be the age, and then now it seems like the age there is a dime a dozen. And it sounds ridiculous me even saying that, but that's just from from what we've gathered anecdotally. Like the age there is a, it, for mature deer seems like seems like is a dime a dozen. So, wouldn't the next rarity thing be? that bigger rack. And I'm not trying to tell people what they should or shouldn't shoot, but it's just like a buddy to buddy thing. You know, like if I was on that lease, I'd, I'd kind of give it this, but then again, I also understand that shooting deer is fun. So
0: it is fun.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I'll say this. It's a whole lot easier to pass deer when you know, for certain there's a bigger one on the property. Mm -hmm. So I'd advise you to get your trail camera game in order and, uh, have more trail cameras. Have better trail cameras, get bigger cards, get bigger batteries. Whatever you got to (laughs) do, figure out what's on that property, and it's you know passing a one seventy is a whole lot easier when you know there's a one ninety on the farm, especially if you only got one tag. Um, But if you know there's a a lot of older age class bucks and they're all about the same size, but and, and that's the top end where well, you might as well take one.
0: I've been using the new Exodus Rival cell camera for the last couple months and I have found a beautiful mainframe eight point with tons of stickers to go after this fall. Ooh. One thing I do appreciate about Exodus trail cameras is all of the cameras share the same data plans. So you only pay for what you need. A lot of cell cam companies charge you for HD pictures. I've seen prices of $5 for 50 HD pics. Exodus is gonna give you unlimited HD pictures right to your phone which is awesome when you're sitting there in the middle of the summer and it's 100 degrees and you just wanna binge a bunch of trail cam photos.
1: If you're looking for a solid cell camera with great performance and a five year, no BS warranty, go check them out. So as we all know, hunting gear is something people can make way too complicated. Arrows can be the exact same way. Instead of going down all those rabbit holes, trying to sift through the endless information that's online and you're not really sure if it's right or wrong, Xs makes it simple to get the right arrow for your exact setup.
0: So go online to the exodus Arrow builder it takes less than a minute you're going to enter your draw weight your draw length and how heavy of a point you're shooting and it's going to be that simple let the guys at exodus take care of the rest
1: so if you're interested in exodus rival cell cameras or a new set of their mmt arrows just go to exodusoutdoorgear.com and use code ha15 for 15 percent off Anything on the website?
0: Once again, that is ExodusOutdoorGear dot com. Use code HA fifteen at checkout for fifteen percent off. Now let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, that's the that's kind of where I'm at with it too. Is um, the one I shot last year was one forty two. Shot him on opening morning. 230 pound deer. Awesome buck. The biggest buck I'd ever shot. I was pumped up about it. And it kind of seems like the biggest deer that I've ever got on camera there is right around that 150 mark. And I'm like, is eight more inches going to give me that much more satisfaction, you know, to hold out for something, uh, that, and I don't know, I don't really know what the answer to that is now. I, I think I want to, you know, and I think I, I do admire how you guys set your goals and you don't compromise on them. But Mm -hmm. I've never seen a more beautiful sight than an arrow running through double lungs of a whitetail. And it's so hard not to compromise when, you know, (laughs) you know how fun that is.
2: You got to take it one step at a time. I was there. I I was there. And today, uh, an unfilled tag doesn't bother me the least. I haven't shot a buck in two years. The last buck I shot was uh, 2020. I shot uh, Mel and then I shot Joey in, in November of 2020. 21 and I didn't shoot a, a buck 22 I didn't shoot a buck and it didn't bother me whatsoever I I, I don't care what anybody thinks or says about me I, I know I could have filled every tag I got with a good buck and it, it just don't bother me anymore but it took a don't get me wrong it took a while to get there it's not like when I was 35 years old I was not bothered when I didn't shoot a when I didn't shoot a buck a season in one season
0: mm-hmm Staying on that topic of, you know, chasing giants is, do you see big deer, you've, you've been around a lot of them, you've been around a lot of high scoring deer, a lot of mature deer. Do you see them more being like a loner personality of all, most of the big ones you shot? Can you categorize, categorize them like that? Cause I feel like we see a yeah. lot of bucks that, you know, you might get a picture of them. they're 40, 50, 60 yards out in the back of the picture. They weren't even intending to be in the picture and you don't see them very often. Do you think they have, most big ones have that trait or is it kind of individualistic to the buck?
2: Well, I think a lot of the bigger antler deer are not necessarily the most dominant deer in an area. Uh, A a lot of the bigger antler deer, their bodies don't match. Uh, A lot of, it seems like a lot of the nutrients that they took in went to their rack instead of the the growth of their body. Uh, A lot of the bigger bodied bucks that I've seen in my life are like 140, 150 inch, even eight pointers, but they just had a huge body on them. Um, and those, those bucks will, you win a battle with a 200 inch buck that's 20, 30 pounds lighter every single time. So I, I think, uh, I have seen a lot of the bigger antlered bucks that I've seen were kind of loners and, uh, they weren't necessarily huge bodied. So I think that might have something to do with it more than the size of their antlers or, you know, a, a six and a half year old buck, one is not necessarily any smarter than the other one based on his antlers. And in fact, the, one of the easiest bucks that I ever killed in my life was, um, smoky 206 inches, 200 inch deer, but he was the absolute easiest buck I ever killed in my life. and. Uh, His rack didn't make him any smarter.
1: Can you go into that a little bit more? Like, why was he the easiest buck? I'm sure you've told this before, but just for people who haven't.
2: He was a homebody. He was uh, on my farm. It didn't matter what day of the year it was, what month it was. He didn't leave and go join a bachelor group. He was here in the summer. Uh, And and that's pretty rare. I just don't have bucks on my farm in the summer. They, They show up in the fall. In the summer, I've got a lot of does and and fawns, and then the bucks show up later. But not him. He was here year round, and the older he got, the more comfortable he got. And uh, I think the year the year before I shot him, I passed that deer thirteen times as a <laughs> five year old, scoring one eighty six, and and I got them all on video too. Um, some of the best video footage I ever taken in my life uh, of deer was of Smokey passing my stand. And, uh, he he just became, as he got older, he became so comfortable and felt so safe, I think on this farm that he would move in daylight more than a lot of other bucks. I actually went on a podcast that summer before I shot him and I said, I'm going to shoot a 200 inch buck this fall. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I think uh, I drew a lot of people's attention because who does that? Yeah. But then I went out and, and I shot him on the second hunt and, and I seen him on the first hunt, but he was just out of range. He was about 80 yards out. And then instead of feeding towards me, he fed away from me, but I, I knew exactly where I was going to kill him too. I I told uh, a blind company, I had 360 blinds. It was the first year I, I hunted out of 360 blinds. And a representative from the company was here helping me put them up that summer. And we was putting this one particular blind up. And I said, I'm going to shoot a 200-incher out of this blind this fall. And he looked <laughs> at me and laughed. I said, I'm serious. I'm going to shoot a 200 out of this blind this fall. And uh, he went back and told the owner of the company. And the owner of the company called me and says, if you shoot a 200-incher out of that blind this fall, I'm going to give you a free blind. I said, okay, well, he gave (laughs) me a free blind because that's exactly where I shot him. (laughs) And I, I needed a very specific wind. I needed a Northwest wind to hunt that blind. And we did not get a Northwest wind for 10 days. And so for the first 10 days of season, I did not hunt that farm. I went other places to hunt. We finally got a Northwest wind on the 11th of October and I hunted and I seen him, but I didn't get a shot. Then the wind switched again, and on the 15th, we got another northwest wind. I went in and killed him. I I just knew what that buck – I knew exactly where he liked to bed on the farm. Uh, There was a switchgrass field. I I talk a lot about uh, when it comes to land management on properties, diversity of, of bedding covers is as important as diversity in food sources because I've seen some individual bucks that preferred to bed in like the switchgrass fields And others that preferred the wooded cover. Well, Smokey was one that preferred the switchgrass. And not only did he prefer the switchgrass, there was one little ravine in my switchgrass field and he liked to bed on a certain bank on, in that, on that ravine. And I don't know how many times I would sit in that blind and I would watch him stand up out there. I mean, you could, couldn't see him until he stood up. And then when he did stand up, you would just see the, the grass moving and you get your binoculars and then you could pick out the antlers in that tall grass. But I, I knew where he preferred to bed. I knew how he came out of that bed based on the wind direction. And uh, I, I knew I was going to kill him. By Hands down, the easiest buck I've ever shot. I'll, I'll probably never, ever hunt an easier buck than that in my life. And, and yeah. he was a 200 incher.
0: You just hope that every 200 has that personality, but they don't, right?
2: That I, I don't expect to ever see another one like that. Uh, the other two that I shot weren't like that whatsoever. They were pretty tough.
1: So what's going through your mind? So let's take it back to the first 200 you shot. What's When you first lay eyes on them, what's going through your mind?
2: Well, the, the first one that I shot, I actually seen that buck four times. Um, from four different tree stands that fall. And the first time I seen him, I didn't know he existed. This was before, I mean, I had one trail camera at that time and it used 35 millimeter film. It, that was before digital cameras. And, you know, you'd put a roll of 24 exposure in and you take it to the one hour photo and you got a bunch of pictures of coons or something. And you're back <laughs> out there running cameras every three days because the film was filling up. But, you know so i i didn't know he existed and it was november sixth of t- 2004 bright sunny day early in the rut um probably temperature was probably at least 10 15 degrees above normal i mean just a bright sunny beautiful day and i'm sitting in my stand and and i hear a I was hunting at the edge of a growed up cattle pasture. Hadn't been cattle in it for several years. So it growed up with some briars and kind of thick. And well, I heard a buck chasing does through the leaves and in, in the trees and such, and couldn't see him. It was too thick, but, uh, he was, I could hear him grunting and I could hear him running in the leaves Hear the does running in the leaves. And this was two hours before dark. And I'm thinking, man, there's just a young buck. This can't be a, a mature buck a day like this. And, this is just a year and a half old buck chasing does around. Well, it wasn't 15 minutes later uh, that running and chasing and grunting's coming my way again. And a group of about five or six does came out of the thicket in front of my stand. And they, they walked right under my stand into the cornfield behind me and started feeding. And as they're doing that, I'm thinking I'm going to get a look at that buck here in a second. And I'm, I just, I'm sitting down, my bow's hanging up, not thinking anything of it. And, I hear the leaves crunching. Here comes this little buck and, uh, out at 30 yards out steps, this absolute giant biggest buck I'd ever <laughs> seen while hunting. And, uh, he just stood there at the edge of the thicket, looking at those does that were right under my stand, but just a little bit behind me. And, uh, he, he was just, he, he was 30 yards out quartering right towards me, just fully alert. No, nothing I could do. I couldn't stand up. I couldn't grab my bow or anything without that deer seeing me. And, uh, I thought, well, those does are going to feed out into that field past me. And then he's going to walk the same path. Those deer, those does did right past my stand and I'll get a shot. But instead of doing that, those does fed for a little bit. And again, we're two hours before dark and then they turn around and they go right back in the thicket, right the way they came. And when that last doe went past that buck back into the thicket, he turned and went right after him. And, uh, boy, I, I didn't sleep that night. I kept thinking to myself, is, was he really as big as what I thought he was? Cause I mean, he had more points and he ended up having 20 points, but just watching him, you couldn't, you couldn't count his points or nothing. And, uh, I thought, man, is he as big as what I thought he was? And the next day I come back and I hunted that. In Illinois, you got a two buck limit and I'd already shot one buck. So I was yeah. down to one buck tag and I made up my mind right then. I'm not shooting any deer except that one. I don't care if I end my season with this tag unfilled, this tag is left for that buck. And, uh, so the next morning I'm back in that same stand cause the wind held. And, uh, I actually passed a 150 inch buck the very next morning. And at that point, I hadn't passed too many 150 inch bucks. I could count on one hand how many 150 inch bucks I'd passed at that point. And this 150 comes by and I just lied there. wasn't even tempted. I just let him go right on by. And, uh, but uh, that stand I had was the only stand on that property at that time. And I could hunt it with a South Southwest wind. And that was the only wind I could hunt from with that stand. And so as I sit there that morning, I had my binoculars out, you know, and I'm, I'm scanning that growed up cow pasture for, and there wasn't a whole lot of big trees. There was just a few, a lot of real, little scrubby trees and briars and stuff. And I picked out two other trees that I could hunt one with the easterly wind and one with westerly winds. And when the wind switched, I was just going to carry in a stand and, and put in those two trees. Well, that day the the wind was supposed to switch and sure enough about midday, the wind switched from south to straight west. And I came in with a buddy of mine at midday. We drove my truck right across open ag field, right to the edge of the woods. Uh, had the radio on as loud as it would go, had the windows down in the truck, had a ladder stand in the back. We pulled right up to that tree where I wanted to put my stand left the truck running, left the radio blaring, got out, and him and I didn't talk. I told him once we get there, don't talk, just let the radio play. And we put that stand up in that tree, and I I climbed up in it, and I pointed to a couple limbs for him to clear shooting lanes, and just a couple. We didn't clear much at all. And then we got in the truck and, and left. And, well, I came back about two hours later, slipped across that field with the wind in my face and climbed up in that ladder stand. And it wasn't 15 minutes after I climbed into that stand, there's that buck 20 yards from me rubbing his antlers on some grapevines. No idea I was anywhere around, but it was so thick that I, I get, I didn't dare take a shot. I mean, I, I'd have been just shooting through really thick brush. So I sit and watch that buck for a few minutes, rubbing his antlers on that grapevine. And I'm like, yeah, he's every bit as big as I thought he was. (laughs) So that was, uh, two days in a row from two different stands, November 6th and 7th. Then on the 11th, the wind, we got a front come through, brought some rain and the wind switched to out of the East. And when it did, I had the other tree picked out, you know, I'd picked out with my binoculars until that point I'd been going back, back and forth from the two stands that I had on the property at that point. And then, when the wind switched out of the east, I had to bring in another stand. So I slipped in across the open field midday in the rain, walking through the half a mile of mud with a stand on my back. I hung the stand in the other tree I'd, been pick, I'd picked out. And about 30 minutes before dark, I see the buck cruising through the, the brush looking for does about 80 yards out. He was well out of range, but uh, he went up and, and walked a, a draw that went out into an ag field. Walked out to the end of it and then came right back. And so I seen him twice, probably about, I don't know, 20 minutes apart, but both times he was 80 yards from me. So the 6th, 7th, and 11th, I seen him from three different tree stands and then ended up killing him on December 1st. Um, what about uh, three weeks later? So that, that's kind of the story of that buck in a nutshell. <sighs>
1: I know what would have been going through my mind is how high up do I need to aim on the horizon to hit it at 80 (laughs) 80 yards?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I I, couldn't imagine. I'd waited my whole life to see a deer like that. And I didn't want to take any chance whatsoever and wounded him. I I wanted to make sure when I took the shot, it was a good, close, good angle, clean, ethical shot. that, That eventually happened, so.
0: Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's a very good story about adaptability, like given what the property takes you, given what the wind gives you, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you got to do that. I feel like a lot of folks wouldn't be interested in going out and hanging different stands and accessing for different ways. You'd be like, oh, I'll just get them when it's right. You know, hunt that one stand, what I've always done. But it sounds like adaptability played a lot of a role in that one.
2: Well, the other thing is I, I didn't put any pressure on that farm. Every one of those three stands, the tree was within less than 10 steps from the edge of the cover. So that was a, that growed up cattle pasture was surrounded by open ag fields, it, it just kind of an island, you know, in that sea of ag. And every one of my stands was right on the edge. So that buck, if he was going to get downwind to me, he had to be out in that open ag field. So it was by that point, I'd learned the importance of freedom of human intrusion. So I was doing my best to keep the human intrusion down and, uh, only hunting the edge and being patient. And yeah. it's a good thing that this didn't happen. If it would have happened probably 10 years earlier, I would have stomped that pasture and I would have <laughs> had tree stands right in the middle of it, right where the most sign was at. And, uh, I would have bumped that deer out within a couple of days, probably. Is there a you talk a lot about you know a mature
0: buck being a completely different animal than a one or two or a three year old? You know when they get in these four or five, six, seven year old age classes, was there a particular encounter or experience or buck that kind of taught you that lesson that they're different, that the mature bucks just are completely different. They act differently. They that that basic that basic lesson
2: um there was there's been several um bucks that i can reflect back on that i did not kill that man i wish i could go back there was one in particular he was an absolute giant typical he was probably 200 inches 100 percent clean typical just a huge huge frame deer That, uh, I ended up getting a shot at him right at uh, dark one afternoon. And, uh, I cut some hair on him, but no blood whatsoever. That buck, uh, he was a tough character, but I wish I could go back and hunt that deer again. If I would have known then what I know now, I would have killed that deer guaranteed. Uh, Because back then there just wasn't as much hunting pressure and I had access at that point to multiple properties in that deer's range and with no competition from other bow hunters. Now there was some gun hunting pressure back then, but the bow pressure was nothing like it, it became later that that's a buck. I'd love to go back and hunt. Um, there's another buck that, uh, I had him dead to rights and I, I was trying to, I was trying to give up the wind. I was trying to cover two trails, one on each side of my stand and I had to give up the wind. So in other words, no matter which way the wind was blowing, it was either blowing to this trail or to that trail. And uh, he came by and, and I knew that buck was in there because I'd seen it rained all the night before and the rain quit right about daylight. And as I was going into to that stand that afternoon, I seen his tracks in the mud, just a single set of giant tracks, one deer by himself. I knew it was a mature buck. he was going right into the wood lot where I was going to hunt. I knew I was going to have a good chance of seeing that deer that afternoon. And sure enough, he comes by, but he's on the downwind trail. And just as I see him, he hits my scent and blows out of there. That was probably about a 160 inch 10 pointer, but I recall that buck really well. Those two bucks, um, didn't get either one of them, but boy, they sure helped me, uh, kill a lot of other bucks after that.
0: <laughs> I I did want to kind of maybe double click or talk about um, hunting where a deer like that is because for the Jake and I didn't hunt anywhere, but our hometown for probably the first 18 years, which is, you know, that's to be expected if your family doesn't travel and hunt and all that stuff. But mm-hmm. we didn't really start getting on these better, class of deer until we started traveling like how important in your mind is it to get in an area you know of those deer if that's the kind of class that you want to want if you want to hunt and what kind of like obsession has it taken for you to like or sacrifices to go chase these deer in places that aren't maybe convenient
2: well i've actually was blessed to be born in an area where we've got them So, the biggest deer I've ever killed, the biggest deer I've ever seen, are all within a few miles of my house. And uh, to be honest, uh, on out-of-state hunts, I've never killed a giant on an out-of-state hunt. I've got pictures of some really good bucks on, you know, out-of-state properties, but uh, it's it's a lot tougher when you're trying to do it on a property that's not out your back door. The farther that property is from home the tougher it's going to be because you just can't spend the time. You don't have the flexibility. If you've got a week's vacation on that property, I mean, I've got places that good, good stands that might require a weird wind, like an East wind. Well, you might, there's some years we don't hardly get an East wind, but boy, when we do, I'm sitting pretty. Cause I mean, I can <laughs> go out and see a bunch of deer, but You know, if, if you've got a week's vacation and you're hunting a property that's several hours from home, you can't just jump in your truck and and go when you get an East wind. And it's just a whole lot easier to live there. I know there's a lot of guys that have relocated to the Midwest, you know, from, from out East, from the South, from wherever to chase these deer. A lot of guys from Michigan have moved to, uh, Iowa, for example. And if you want to really consistently kill big deer, you need to be living where those big deer are at, not just having a lease there, not just going there for a couple hunting trips in the fall. You need to be able to live there so that you're able to jump in a stand when the conditions are right. And, and, you know, there's a lot of times during season that I may want to go hunting this afternoon. And I have no idea what stand I'm going to get, even what property I'm going to uh, until right before I go. I'm checking the wind right before I go. I've got an idea where I want to go. Don't get me wrong. But uh, until the conditions confirm to me that it's okay to go there, I'm not going to take a chance and burn a standout. You can burn a standout on one hunt. And that's something that took me a long time to learn. I thought I would have a, there, there was a time when I would have 40 stands ready to hunt on various properties. And, and I would think, and, and they were all pretty good stands too. Again, this was in a different era when I had a whole lot more freedom to, to hunt a whole lot more properties. And I had the idea that, ah, oh, you know what? It, one hunt in November out of each of them stands, you know, that ain't going to hurt nothing. I can go and I, I got so many stands. I'll just hunt each one of them one time in October. And then when November rolls around, that's when I'll start hitting it hard based on wind direction. Well, I'll tell you what, one time in October is enough to ruin a stand. I learned that the hard way. I've burned out more stands than anybody you've ever talked to in your life. (laughs) (laughs) I've made the mistakes. And I'm telling you, human intrusion is a killer when it comes to hunting mature bucks. It is absolutely, and here's the crazy thing. The most important thing you can do on a hunting property cost you absolutely zero dollars and zero minutes of your time. And just stay the heck out until the <laughs> conditions are right. That's it. doesn't cost you a penny and it doesn't take a minute of your time, but it's the most important thing you can do on a hunting property. So are you guys able to bait where you're at or
1: does CWD still have like a noose around y'all?
2: We have never been able to bait in Illinois. We can't use men or we can't do anything. I haven't forever.
1: Okay. Well, then I don't know if you're the best person to ask on this, but I have this another hypothesis about how it seems like the bigger racked deer, they tend to not like, let's say, spin feeders. And because on the small properties kind of where my private piece is in Oklahoma, you're you're allowed to bait. And uh, I feel like they can associate feeders and stuff with danger, if that makes sense. And so, But again, living in a bait state, and if it's a small parcel of land, you're kind of danged if you do and danged if you don't about the bait and ordeal because, you know, obviously all the neighbors are going to be running it. But I just I just feel like a corn pile is more natural for those bigger deer. And they seem to and you seem to get more pictures of them on a corn pile rather than a feeder. But the thing is with the amount of does we have and the little corn thieves they call raccoons. You, you can dump 200 pounds of corn and it'll be gone in two days. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the issue I'm having right now is, you know, you kind of want to stay out to, to, to limit the human intrusion. But at the same time, it's like, you're, I feel like I'm kind of hurting myself by having that spin feeder out there as well.
2: Well, I don't have a lot of experience with feeders. I mean, I do have a property in Ohio where we can feed there year round. And I do. Um, but as far as hunting over feeders and, and in my experience is just so limited because I'm so far away from it. Mm-hmm. You know, if I lived in a state where you could do it, I, I'm, I'm sure I would have probably fed many semi loads of corn by now, but <laughs> I just <laughs> haven't hey, Gene, had that so opportunity. You're probably,
1: you're probably good. Yeah. It's probably about expensive as the dang lithium batteries right now. It seems like <laughs> yeah. at least yeah. that's, that's kicking my butt, but, uh, so Don, we kind of have this thing that, to wrap it up, I usually ask people, you know, what's that one moment or encounter, you know, where you almost sealed the deal but get didn't get it done? What's that close to no no cigar? The thing that keeps you up all night? And uh, I feel like you already hit that. But is there another one of those that that kind of keeps you up on the on the deer encounters?
2: Well, th- there's no doubt that the biggest. Missed opportunity in my life is the buck that I described a little bit ago, the giant typical that I shaved hair, but didn't draw blood. I called him the cedar house buck because the first time that I seen him, I was hunting be, behind this house that had cedar siding on it. And so I just called him the cedar house buck. And I I really think that that buck was a 200 inch typical, um, That's just incredible. absolutely ginormous frame wide and tall um i had a friend from ohio he was quite a bit older than me at the time i was probably in my i was probably in my late 20s when that happened and i had a friend from ohio that was probably around 40 or so at the time he came and he would hunt with me for a week in illinois then i'd go back and hunt with him for a week in ohio each year during the rut and uh that fall, he seen the buck when he was here, and that is all that guy talked. He even came back and hunted the late season when it was really difficult because um, I didn't have, I didn't own a property, I didn't have food plots or anything. And after our gun season back in those days, it was very, very difficult to lay eyes on a buck. We didn't have as many deer back then, for one thing, but he was so fired up after seeing that deer. He swore that it was a 200-inch world record. He, he swore it was a world record. Now, I don't know if I'd take it that far, but I'm telling you, that was a giant that still haunts me to this day. <laughs> Almost, what, 30, it, it, more than 30 years later, um, it, it still haunts me to this day. <laughs> wow. Well, I was listening to a
1: podcast with uh, Bobby Worthington, and he said that he would trade every deer on his wall to get back the ones that, that he didn't seal the deal on. Are you kind of in the same boat or.
2: Um, not anymore. I, I was <laughs> at, one time, <laughs> I, at one time I had, I was only batting about 50% on getting target bucks in and getting an arrow in them. Mm-hmm. Um, today, I mean, I've had a good run if, if, no, I, I wouldn't i wouldn't say that you know i've i've had a really good <laughs> run here be. in recent years i think i've caught up and shot more than my fair share yeah it sounds well, like god's yeah. been good since 2020 for sure what a, actually started in 2017 and so so
0: if if you had to kind of we've talked for over an hour here and you had to kind of put a bow on it and if the just the average guy which Jake and I are still couple of those but below average yeah maybe a little below average actually but um (laughs) if you had to just give a couple things just in short of what people can do this season to make a noticeable difference on their chase of a giant you know maybe something that people are doing commonly wrong that you think they can fix really easily what would a couple of those things be in closing
2: well, you, you got to control the human intrusion. Um, access is everything on a stand. If, if you don't have good access to a stand, you don't have a good stand. I don't care how much sign is in front of it. I don't care how much deer traffic goes past that tree. If you don't have good access, you're not going to get very many good hunts out of it. And you're not only going to ruin that stand, you're going to ruin the whole property. So access and learning to play the wind, two huge things when it comes to picking out good stand sites. Um, Human intrusion would be the other thing. Human intrusion will run a property before season even opens if you don't do things right.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's a great place to, to wrap it up. I, I appreciate you doing this. Um, I appreciate how outspoken you are about your faith um, as hard it is to do. Sometimes when people are haters and trying to drag you down, I know how hard that can be, but we appreciate all those things. If, if people want to connect with you, maybe watch your podcast or maybe check out Real World, where's the best place for them to do that?
2: Well, I've got a website, higginsoutdoors.com. Um, my seed company would be uh, realworldwildlifeproducts.com. Uh, I got a YouTube channel, um, Chasing Giants um, with Higgins Outdoors. Podcast Chasing Giants, can be found on any podcast platform, just about. Uh, something new that I've started about a year ago, not quite a year ago, is a Whitetail Master Academy. Uh, you Go to whitetailmasteracademy.com. It's a subscription website where we put out new videos every week. Uh, a lot of property design videos and such, but there's also several free videos on that website, too, to kind of you know help give people a taste of the types of videos that I put out. So uh whitetailmasteracademy.com would be a good one for people to check out. Awesome. Well, Don,
1: I just wanted to say this before we before we got off of it. Like I I just want to tell you how much we appreciate like what you and Terry do over there. Uh, kind of like Christian already touched on like the like the faith based hunting stuff. And I feel like that's a lot of what people's missing nowadays. And it seems like in the hunting world that more people are focused on getting their name in the you know like the boone and crockett book or the pope and young book when in reality you know they should be focused on prepping not not stand prepping not not gear prep and any of that stuff but like trying to prep their own selves to get their name in another book and i feel like that's a lot more important than you know a, a record deer which don't get me wrong like that's that's what we all love to do that's what we all strive for but i feel like this is the best place to kind of get that out especially talking to you and and how big you all have got just speaking through god's word so i just want to say thank you
2: well i appreciate that thank you and um you know iron sharpens iron we got to help each other out and support each other and i you know i've said before that you know those i got three 200 inch deer on the wall and You know, those deer, they mean a lot to me, but I'll tell you what means more to me is I've had a handful of young men contact me and say, you know, Hey, I I just got baptized on Sunday and I want you to know it's because of you guys. I didn't even know that maybe listen to the podcast or maybe I've met them one or two times just briefly. And, uh, that's my real trophies. If I can, you know, help someone shed the light, you know, and, 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 you know, help them get their life on the right track. It's not only rewarding for, for me and for them, but it's something that'll have impact on their family for generations. Um, you know, what's the biggest problem with the world today is, is men. It's men not living up to their responsibility as the leaders of the home, the spiritual leaders of the home. And if I can somehow influence a, a handful of young guys to you know see the light and and recognize that, hey, you know God's blessed you with a family here and a good wife. Um, let's get things on track at home and and be the spiritual leader then that that's my main goal,
0: yeah, that's good. I, every time I listen to the podcast, I hear the the priorities, the, the God, the, the family and the deer hunting. And I, by the way, I think that is the exact priority with deer hunting being three. There's a lot of other things that fight for number three, but gosh, we got to fight to keep it there, but that's, that's (laughs) the right order.
2: Yep. For sure. And, you know, to be honest, deer hunting is a whole lot more enjoyable when your whole, your life's priorities are in order. I mean, how can you, If your family's not a priority, how can you be sitting in your tree, um, knowing that you've just had a fight with your wife, you know, that, that, that can't be enjoyable. Um, when you got your priorities in order, um, you know, deer hunting, it just becomes all the more enjoyable.
0: Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you in the next episode.